Morning, Bethel. So beginning in chapter 32 of Exodus, verse 35, this is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, that's the golden calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. That's their jewelry and finery. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And then flip to chapter 34, starting in verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So word of the Lord, you may have a seat. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to see you all. 
right, so we are continuing in our study through 2 Corinthians here this morning. And I'm <laughs> doing well, Barry. How are you doing? Doing all right? It's good to see you. Okay. We'll have to talk later. So, all right. Um, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, we're going to be reading that Exodus passage's background for this morning, and um, we're going to be reading our text in just a moment from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. You can find that on page uh, 965 if you're using the Pew Bible. So while you're turning there, I want you to just think about your own life and how you're doing, and just to ask you a few questions. Do you want to change? Do you want to grow? Um, and I don't mean in terms, you know, we've got New Year's resolution time coming up, and maybe you've got stuff like, you know, time management you need to improve on, or maybe breaking some addiction, which that'd be a good thing, but sometimes the motivation with that can be pride just as much as anything else. Like, we don't want to look bad. Um, but what I mean as far as change is concerned is do you want to become more like Jesus? More loving, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you know, could go on and on. The question, though, is how does that happen? Do you ever struggle with that? How do I change? How do I grow? Do you know how? If there's things that you want to see change, do you know how? Do you have a plan for growth? Do you know what the pathway looks like, a strategy? Do you know how to change? I think we all know it certainly doesn't happen by accident, but we can also be pretty painfully aware that we can't just flip a switch and make it happen. Well, our passage this morning is at the heart of God's answer to that question of how we change. And so I hope that that ends up being reason enough to pay attention. We are going to have to do some digging, understanding, some background till we finally get to the answer to this question. Um, but let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. I'll pray again briefly and then we'll dive in. Okay? Picking up where we left off last week. So chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would please open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. I pray that we would not just understand the words on the page here in this section, but that what it describes would actually happen as we study it. Would you please so open our eyes that we would behold the glory of the Lord Jesus with the eyes of faith enabled by your spirit so that we are changed on the spot this morning. We want to change, Lord, but we are oftentimes stuck oftentimes frustrated, feeling like we're spinning our wheels or we've failed so many times in our attempts to change. And yet there is power and there is grace and there is hope for change right here. So would you please do it? Come by your spirit as we study your word, as Jesus is exalted. And just like at the beginning of creation, when the Spirit hovered over the waters and you spoke, and chaos was ordered, and emptiness was filled, would you come as your word is spoken and by your Spirit into our hearts and lives? Would you bring chaos to an end and bring order? And where we are empty, would you fill us by your grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so three points this morning. Um, There's an outline in the bulletin. You can also see the uh, points on the slide here. Um, First, glory and covenant in those first few verses, verses 7 through 11. Let's read those again together here. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So what in the world is going on here? It can be a pretty confusing section. We're going to need to do a little bit of digging here, like I said. So first, let's just start with what's obvious. This section is all about, what would you guess? 
There's, there's a word that's repeated 10 times. Did you catch it? Louder. <laughs> glory. Okay, yeah. So noun form eight times, two verb forms. The word glory or glorify to glory. Um, so it's all about glory, lesser glory, greater glory. It's also a contrast between the ministry of Moses and ministry of Paul. So one has lots of glory, Moses' Sinai covenant ministry. The other has so much more glory that the former glory has got no glory in comparison. Okay? New covenant ministry of Paul as opposed to old covenant ministry of Moses. So there's three main contrasts, ways in which the new covenant is superior to the old. One brought death, Moses's, Paul's. New Covenant ministry brings the spirit and life. One brought condemnation, the other righteousness. One was transient or temporary, the other permanent. Okay? But, so that's kind of what's going on in broad brush, but let's try to understand what's going on by asking this question. Why couldn't the Israelites gaze at Moses' face? It's a weird thing. Shining face, like, what kind of weirdness is this? But actually, the answer to that question is the key to understanding these verses and even the rest of the passage. So we need to dig in and make sure we we get it. So let's go back. When Israel came to Mount Sinai, God said he was going to descend on the mountain, book of Exodus. Okay, the people were told to consecrate themselves, get themselves ready, purify themselves, because God was going to show up. And remember, you're supposed to put a limit around the mountain, like Don't get too close. God's going to show up. It's dangerous to go inside the fence. You'll die. Moses alone could go up to meet with God. So turn back there. We're going to do a little tour of Exodus here, Um, brief tour, to Exodus 19, verse 21. Exodus 19, second book of the Bible. It's on page 60 if you're using the Pew Bible. Actually, our verse is on page 61. Um, so Exodus 19, 21 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord past the fence around Mount Sinai, to look, and many of them perish. In other words, if you cross that boundary, you're going to die. Now look at chapter 20, verse 18. Just skip ahead a little bit. Now when all the people saw... The thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. Imagine seeing that. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Then God called Moses to meet with him up on Mount Sinai. On the mountain, he gives Moses all kinds of instructions for the sanctuary, the tabernacle, okay, where God would dwell with his people. That's key. And then finally, at the end of chapter 31, God gives Moses the tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And while the Israelites, meanwhile, down in the valley, down at the bottom of the mountain, what are they busy doing? Making a golden calf. So chapter 32. So before Moses goes down, 32.9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I'm just going to start over with you, Moses. So what saves the Israelites is the mediation, the intercession of Moses on their behalf. 
And then in Exodus 33, God tells Moses to go up to the promised land, but he's just not going to go along. So, so look at Exodus 33.3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. For the Lord had said to Moses, this is verse 5, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So Moses is the only one that can actually be in God's presence without being consumed. The rest of the people are rebellious and hard-hearted, so they would be consumed. So Moses intercedes with God again. God agrees to go with them because Moses has found favor in God's sight. And then he asks this amazing thing. He asks to see God's glory. So what does the Lord do? He covers them, you know, in the cleft of the rock and passes by and just allows Moses to see kind of the after effects of his glory passing by. Then he prepares Moses for the second set of tablets and Moses is on the mountain for 40 days. And then Exodus 34, 29, this is the passage that's underneath the one that we're studying in 2 Corinthians 3. So look at Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord again. So here's the point. God's presence could not dwell with the people of Israel because of the hardness of their hearts. They were rebellious idolaters, golden calf. So the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord was frightening to them. It was a threat. So rather than it being a comfort, something sweet and wonderful, it was a threat because of their rebellion. So they could not look intently into the face of Moses because of the glory of the Lord that shone from his face, like moon reflecting the sun. So rather than mediating the presence of the Lord to the people, which would have been the grace of God to his people, Moses' ministry was thwarted. He had to veil it. It became a ministry of death in letters engraved on stones because there was no transformation of their hearts. Okay? So now, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3. With that background in mind, and hopefully things will make a bit more sense. So back to 2 Corinthians 3. You remember in verse 5 that Paul says our sufficiency is from God. And then verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the contrast that Paul makes there is not between the law and the gospel. As if the law equals, ah, that's bad. Gospel, that's good. The law in and of itself is good. Paul says so elsewhere. 
Romans 7. The law is good. It's the revelation of the character and the wisdom and the ways and the love of God. So it's not meant to kill. The letter that kills there in verse 6 is not the law in and of itself. It's the law without the Spirit. When the law meets a hard heart, there's no power in that external law to make the person obey it. It just remains dead letter on a page. So when the law meets a hard heart, it actually, what does it do? It kicks up more sin, which brings condemnation and death. So the problem was not with the law. The problem was not with Moses. It was the hard-heartedness of the people. So Moses' ministry was a ministry of judgment. That's why it's called a ministry of death. So the inferiority of the Old Covenant was not that it was, you know, law and now we have grace. It's that it was external. The inner heart transformation was not part of the covenant itself. The law was written on tablets of stone, not on hearts of flesh. So external rules don't make people good. They can't. They're powerless to affect that kind of change. And that's how the new covenant differs then. At the heart of the new covenant is the giving of the Spirit to remove the veil, to open blind eyes, eyes of faith, to take out hearts of stone, replace them with new hearts. So we're talking about the new covenant. There's one place in the Old Testament where the new covenant, that language is used. It's predicted in many places, but there's one place where the phrase new covenant is used. Jeremiah 31. So turn there quickly here for a minute. Jeremiah 31. It's easy to remember. 3131. You can find it on page 660. Because Paul's talking about his ministry of the new covenant, so we should understand what that means. Here it is being predicted. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law not on tablets of stone outside us. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So transformation is in the DNA of the new covenant. Just to underline the point, listen to two more passages that speak of what's coming with the new covenant. Maybe you can just mark the references down. Don't take the time to turn there. But, well, you could probably turn to the first one. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may, that they will not turn from me. Isn't that sweet? That's what God's going to do. That's what God has done. If you're in Christ, that is your promise. That's what he's done. He is not going to turn from you, turn away from you, forsake you. He's placed the fear of you in your heart. 
He's going to do good to you forever. He's not going to turn away from doing. He's not going to change his mind. Ezekiel 36, 26. Again, write this one down. I'll just read it here. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And listen to this. Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that sweet? It's power given to us by the Spirit. So in contrasting Paul's ministry of the Spirit to Moses' ministry of death, the difference is that Moses could not mediate the glory and presence of God because it was thwarted by the hardness of the Israelites' hearts. That's why he had to veil his face. If he were to be bold with his ministry of mediating the glory of God, the presence of God with his people, the people would have been consumed. They would have been destroyed. So by wearing the veil, Moses was, in a sense, protecting the people from the judgment of God. Great as Moses was, great as the Exodus was, and all the glory that went along with it, the creation of the Mosaic Covenant, ultimately it was ineffective. It was being brought to an end. But with Paul's ministry, the reason why the new covenant ministry is so much more glorious is because through Paul's proclamation of the cross, the Spirit powerfully transforms hearts and writes the law on the hearts of his people. Paul can be very bold. His ministry is not thwarted in any way. So he can freely mediate the Spirit of God by boldly proclaiming the truth. That bold proclamation of the cross was and is the means by which dead sinners are made alive, by which wandering sheep are brought back into the fold, by which all believers are increasingly conformed to the glorious image of Jesus. It's how it all happens. So you can see why Paul makes these crazy, audacious claims about his ministry. I mean, he dares to compare his ministry to Moses and say that his is vastly superior, more glorious than Moses's. Well, it's not really his. It's the new covenant ministry that he has the privilege of being a part of. So maybe you can see how this fits into his defense. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you can see how this fits into his defense of his ministry that he's having to give to the Corinthians so that they continue to follow him instead of being drawn away by those false apostles that had crept in. So now he draws the implications of verses 7 to 11 in verses 12 to 18. Okay, so that was point number one. Lots of digging there, but now we're going to work toward the implications and the application, okay? So point number two, boldness and freedom. Two key ideas in these verses, boldness and freedom. Keep an eye out for them. Paul is very bold in his ministry. I've already mentioned that. And for those who embrace the new covenant, there is freedom. Okay, look at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, because, previous verse, of the permanency of the new covenant, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So do you see what Paul does here? 
he shows how the necessity of the veil in Moses' day is an illustration of the veil that lies over the hearts of the Jews because they're blind to the gospel. So he goes from the specific instance of Moses in the wilderness to Paul's kinsmen, you know, and the fact that they're, by and large, hard to the gospel. That veil is lying over their hearts, so they're blind to the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So only through Christ, now in the new covenant, is the veil taken away. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When a person repents of their sin, turning from their sin, trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then the veil is removed. Well, how does this turning, this veil removal happen? Only by the Spirit of the Lord. Only by the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In other words, the veil is removed, and freedom results rather than blindness and slavery. So let's first just quickly address one question that pops up here. Do you see what Paul says at the beginning of verse 17? Did that trip you up at all? Now the Lord is the Spirit. What does that mean? It's like Trinitarian confusion going on here or what? <laughs> Anybody that should trip you up? Do you track in here? Or maybe I need to show you the problem before you have a problem with the problem or, or whatever. I don't know. Okay. So what's likely going on here, probably the most likely explanation, is that in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, Paul is echoing Exodus 34, 34. Moses went in before the Lord and removed the veil. Okay, so listen, ESV Study Bible has a great little helpful note here. Just as Moses was able to enter into God's presence without a veil, Exodus 34, 34. So too, when one turns to the Lord in faith, the veil of separation from God and incomprehension of him brought about by a hardened heart is removed. So it doesn't happen for us in a mountaintop experience like Moses, but through the preaching of Christ. It's by the power of the Spirit that the veil is removed and the freedom is experienced. So we encounter the living God the Lord of the Old Testament by His Spirit in the preaching of Christ. So again, this is not a confusing of the persons of the Trinity. It's not to say that the Spirit is the Son or the Spirit is the Father. It's to say that the Spirit is the Lord, just like the Son is the Lord, just like the Father is the Lord. It's kind of like saying the, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. You tracking? So it's to say that the Lord of the Old Testament is one God. And when one turns to this one Lord, as the gospel of Jesus is preached, the Spirit, who is Lord, is at work to remove the blinders, to remove the veil, so that blood-bought freedom is experienced. It's the Spirit at work doing that. So this freedom, we should just be so grateful for these new covenant promises. Do you remember the day this happened? If you're in Christ, do you remember the day when the blinders came off? It's good to think back and remember. It's so easy for us to get so focused on our problems and all that's not happening. And 
we just forget about all the grace that's been poured out on us. It's good to look back. So maybe for some of you, it was like a bam, lightning bolt moment. For others of you, it was more of a process, but then at some point you just, man, wow, I'm different. I'm new. I can see. I mean, have any of you had the experience where, you know, you previously read the Bible, maybe you grew up in the church, you heard it preached, but it didn't make much sense, but then after you were converted, all of a sudden passages came alive and you, you got it. That is the work of the mighty spirit of the living God. And where the spirit of the Lord is at work, there is freedom, freedom from condemnation. Freedom from the domain of darkness. Freedom from Satan's oppressive rule. Freedom from sin's tyranny. Freedom from guilt's slavery. Freedom from shame. Freedom from the steer. Wait a minute. Freedom from the fear and the sting of death. Freedom from your blindness to the beauty and glory of God? I mean, don't you remember just being bored and like, oh, what a, that would be such a drag to follow Jesus. It would just like steal all my fun. What is that? That's blindness. But then it's like Paul on the Damascus Road. My resume, gain. Jesus, imposter, loss. And then Jesus shows up. The veil, the, the blinders taken off. Actually, he was made blind, you know, turn it around. But then he really saw. And now he starts talking like this. Whatever I counted as gain, it's loss. It's rubbish. Nothing compared to gaining Christ. In fact, I continue to count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as my Lord. Gaining him. He's what I want. So freedom, not just from all these other things, Blindness, condemnation, but freedom to see, freedom to enjoy, and to not be threatened by the presence of God, but thrilled by it. Aren't you glad that God is your refuge, that he's your strong tower, that his nearness is your good? He's actually our comfort zone. He ought to be our comfort zone. Our peace all that comes from the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent of all this glorious freedom, making it real to us so that we actually experience it, not just knowing it here, but experiencing it. So Paul knows that this kind of stuff is what happens when he preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul is very bold in his speech, verse 12, because his ministry is how the Spirit gives life and transforms lives. So Paul's manner of speech is marked not by timidity or fear or weakness. They thought he was weak, but no. He's bold and plain in his speech. He doesn't have to dance. He doesn't have to couch. He doesn't have to nuance everything to be so careful as if everything depended on him to persuade people and change them. No, it's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel of the crucified Messiah, driven home by the Spirit of God that does all the work of transformation. So Paul just needs to boldly proclaim it. 
And guess what? Same with us. Do you sometimes keep your mouth shut because you feel like you'll probably like trip over your tongue? Do you get all anxious like you might burn a bridge or you might say the wrong thing or you might? The power's not in us. The persuasion's not in us. Trust the gospel. Trust the power of the gospel and let's speak it and watch its power at work. So Moses, he couldn't be bold with his ministry because Israel would have been destroyed. He constantly had to veil his face. By doing so, he cut off, he brought to an end, in in reference to its impact, his mediation of the glory and presence of the Lord. Paul didn't have to hold back at all. He knew, verse 16, that whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, God's presence dwells with that person without destroying us. This is what all of redemptive history is moving towards. Do you know that? This is the purpose of the cross and the giving of the Spirit, to prepare a people with whom God himself will dwell forever without destroying us, like face to face. So Emmanuel, God with us, to overcome our sin that separates us, and the Spirit is given and we're transformed one degree of glory to the next in this life, and then one day when Jesus returns, bam, glorification, and we will dwell with God forever. We're going to have resurrected eyeballs so we can see the glory of God and not be consumed. Not through a glass darkly, but directly face to face. The most beautiful sight you've ever seen. So this ought to thrill us. It thrills Barry, at least. He's a good example for us. So we ought to be intensely, like what's some of the application? We ought to be grateful. Intensely, eternally grateful that we are not hard-hearted. Why are you not hard-hearted like the Israelites in the, in the desert? If you've got a soft heart this morning, oh, thank you, thank you for removing the veil. We should be overjoyed that the presence of God is sweet to us, not a threat. If it is a fearsome threat, you can run to Jesus as your refuge. You can run to Jesus this morning and be saved and reconciled to this God so that you can dwell with him forever. All you got to just turn to the Lord. Turn from your sin and turn to him in faith. Trust him. And all this is yours. So if you're a new creation in Christ, you will enjoy his presence forever and will live in his unmediated direct presence in the new creation forever and ever. He will be our God, and we will be his people. Listen to the end of the story, Revelation 21 and 22. You can just listen, just drink this in. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And we will be thrilled. You're gonna, I mean, were it not for resurrected hearts, whatever that means, they'd explode with joy. Seeing the beauty of God unmediated. Now, in the meantime, 
before that day. God dwells with us, not just with us among us, but in us by his spirit, and his spirit is actively at work opening our eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's our last point, verse 18, beholding and becoming. Look at verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, not just like Moses, you know, with an unveiled face, but all of us in the new covenant, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We don't have to cringe. We're not going to be destroyed. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So in the new covenant, the glory of God is mediated by the Spirit. It's powerful and effective so that we're transformed. So back to how we began. Here is how we change, folks. This right here is the key to growth and transformation, or to use the big, you know, 10-cent theological word, sanctification. This is how we grow. We become like what we behold. We become like what we admire. It's why you own eagle's gear. I'll give you a second. It's why young singers imitate their favorite singer. It's why young athletes imitate their favorite athlete stance. You know, why do my boys want to do? Come on, throw me an Odell. Any football? Odell Beckham makes these great one-handed catches. We want to become like what we admire. We need to see, we need to behold, not just information, but sight with delight. Or we could call it apprehending with admiration. Okay, this is not just intellectual assent to facts about God. Even the demons believe and shudder, okay? You can write a paper about honey and know all kinds of things about it, but if you haven't tasted it, you don't know honey. We become by beholding. Are you beholding? the glory of God in Jesus. It's true knowledge. The truth becomes real and sweet to you. It goes from concept to reality. It's truth experienced. It's tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Where does that come from? It comes from the Spirit activating the truth of God about Jesus. You know it. So, for instance... How do you know God loves you? And I don't mean know God loves you. I mean know God loves, loves you. Well, of course, if you want to know God loves you, you've got to look at the cross. But the cross is out there 2,000 years ago. It's here on a page. How do I know it in here? Oh, Spirit of God, please open my eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus. Make it real. I need to behold so that I can be transformed. How do you know God is for you and not against you? Oh, of course, Jesus. But how does that become real? Only by the Spirit's work. Don't you long for that work to happen more regularly? This is a call to read our Bibles 
and listen to preaching, whether it's here or on a podcast or whatever, on our knees, as it were. It's a call to meditate on Scripture, just like Jacob saying, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. So what are you aiming at when you open the Bible? Assuming that you read the Bible. Hope you read the Bible. (laughs) What are you aiming at when you open the Bible? Are you saying, Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. We need to seek this. We need to read our Bibles on our knees. The word is like wood. We need to pile it up. The spirit is the match. Pray down the fire. So if growth in Christ-likeness, transform one to glory to the next, is like a refiner's fire, then grace is the fire in the furnace of faith. A bunch of wood on its own doesn't produce any heat. But when the Spirit brings the fire and sets it on fire, that truth, then you get some serious heat. So how well is this going to happen if you're always self-absorbed? If you spend more time looking at your problems than looking at Jesus, how well is this going to go? Navel-gazing never transformed anyone. We've got to get our eyes fixed on Jesus. Like the Puritans used to say, for every one look in, take ten to Jesus. Or we could you know, tweak it a little bit and say, for every one look at our problems, let's, look, let's take ten to Christ. Does this seem impractical to you? Like, I think we are sold a bill of goods when what we want is like three easy steps to five secrets to, like, oh, is that so tired? Every magazine shelf is filled with 500 of those magazines. There's no formula here, but the pathway's clear. If you think this is impractical, that's Satan whispering in your ear because you know what he wants to do? He wants you to be blind to the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I'll leave that one alone. That's two weeks from now. So think about it. This is not impractical. What has been more transformative in your life morally as far as the change in your character? To be prodded and beaten from behind with a stick. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Or to be attracted from in front by the admirable example of a parent or a mentor or a coach. How many of you have read, just show of hands, how many of you read a really good biography in your life? (laughs) Okay, enough of us to make the point. Guess what? There's no imperatives in biographies. There's no commands in biographies, but they can change your life. How's that happen? By the power of example. You behold something beautiful, courageous, like, whoa, and I want to be more like that person. So it's happened for me, John Patton, C.S. Lewis, Francis and Edith Schaefer, Navy SEAL Adam Brown. Anyway, this could go on. But the ultimate illustration is beholding the glory of Christ, loving what we see, so that we want to and we do become more like him. It's going to be baby steps, incremental, from one degree of glory to the next. But if we're not beholding, this isn't going to happen. So, again, really practical. Like, 
You remember Mark 10, where Jesus is talking to the disciples, saying, you know, shouldn't be like this among you as far as leadership, servant leadership. Gentiles lord it over, you should be servant of all. Where's the power to be transformed to live that way? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're struggling to lead like Jesus and serve like Jesus, you need the Spirit of God to take the example, the glory of Christ, verse 45, and make it so real and sweet. Oh, he's the greatest, and he was the most humble servant. And that starts to come alive, and you will want to lead like him. Philippians 2, have the mind of Christ. Consider others more important than myself, you know, like, oh, that's really hard. He was equal with God. And he didn't consider it something to be held on to for his own advantage, but he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. That becomes real, and all of a sudden, I've got power. I'm I'm transformed. I, I, I want to consider the needs of others ahead of my own. So I'm going to close with this quote. There's a great little book called Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. And here's what he says, and then he quotes um, Charles Spurgeon. And man, this is good. The sight of Jesus is like the eruption of glorious light in a darkness. It illumines our minds. It makes our faces shine. And it drives away our darkness. It is grace. And it is gracious judgment. The light of his perfection exposes our imperfection more than any wielding of the law ever could. It makes us see ourselves aright. As John Calvin put it, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. But it does more than expose. It overcomes our imperfection and so liberates us. And once again, it cures us far more effectively than any effort at self-improvement. No more DIY righteousness, okay? And then he gives this illustration. This is so helpful. Like the genial sun on the frost of our hearts, said Charles Spurgeon, quote, I cannot liken it to anything that I know of better than the snow which melts in the sun. You wake up one morning and all the trees are festooned with snowy wreaths, while down below upon the ground the snow lies in a white sheet over everything. Lo, the sun has risen, its beams shed a genial warmth, and in a few hours, where is the snow? It's passed away. Had you hired a thousand carts and horses and machines to sweep it away, it could not have been more effectually removed. It has passed away. That is what the Lord does. His love shines on the soul. His grace renews us, and the old things pass away as a matter of course, where his blessed face beams with grace and truth as the sun with warmth and light. He dissolves the bands of sin's long frost and brings on the spring of grace with newness of buds and flowers. How often, if you tried to beat anxiety or fear, like me, shoveling my stupid driveway, for hours. And what if you behold the glory of Jesus 
And just like the sun rising, it just melts and it's gone. Envy. How, how do you want to change? Humility. Fear. Anxiety. You can try a hundred how-tos, and yet one glimpse of the glory of Jesus can change everything in a moment, like the sun melting the snow. Don't you long for that? Will you join me in praying for that? Like, not just now, but like this is a regular prayer, like a daily prayer, like for the rest of your life prayer. And this Advent, what great practice, like training wheels. This Advent season can be like training wheels for us. Every heart prepare him room. This is how we walk through Advent. Eyes peeled, on the lookout, fixing our eyes on Jesus. I want to see your glory. I don't want it to just be in one ear, out the other. Just more information. Oh, I, I know the story. Make it real. Make it live. Live so that it transforms me. So as we come to the table, let's pray that this would happen. Let's see the glory at the table. Let's taste that glory at the table. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. All of this new covenant grace is ours in him. And even where the light of his face exposes our sin, again, the table is a reminder of his grace that paid for that, And he is there to be seen again to behold his glory so that we can be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So you may even want to turn to Jeremiah 31 and just read and ponder, savor and see all that is yours in Christ as we receive the bread and the cup and prepare our hearts to participate in the table. So if the men are going to serve, can come forward. I'll pray and then we will partake together. Um, So if you are with us this morning and you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. Just let the elements pass. No shame in that. Um, This is a meal for believers in Jesus to partake of his grace that's ours um, by his grace through faith in him. So let's pray and then we'll distribute the elements and hold them both until everyone's served and then we'll participate together. Oh God, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for this great salvation that is ours. Oh, to think of what we deserve without your mercy. We can't get anywhere near you without being consumed. And that's exactly what we deserve. But we thank you that you came to us, Emmanuel, God with us, to take the judgment and condemnation that we deserve so that we could be hidden in him, clothed with Christ, and transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next so that we can dwell with you now and forever. Make that so sweet to us this morning, throughout this Advent season, And please, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race that's set before us so that we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next and we boldly proclaim the grace and truth that can do the same freedom work in the lives of others. Do it for your namesake. Amen.